40 years ago, Gough Whitlam's bold move to shift recognition of China from Taipei to Beijing got the ball rolling in relations between the two countries. Australia. Its economy has seen nearly a quarter century of growth, mostly thanks to Chinese appetite for its vast mineral resources. More than a quarter of Australia's exports now go to China, with minerals and education the key sectors. You're listening to The Conversations Speaking With podcast. I'm William Isdale. Even though the uh, heyday of the mining boom is behind us, or at least until the next big cycle comes along, nevertheless, still 30% of Australian exports by value are shipped to China. Increasingly, these exports are diversifying away from resource-related extracts and, and exports into other you know, somewhat more dynamic and complex areas of the economy, like in the services sector, tourism, for example, or in the education sector. Bates Gill is professor of Asia-Pacific Strategic Studies at the Australian National University and one of the authors of China Matters, Getting It Right for Australia. When Xi Jinping, the current leader, was appointed in, in 2012, one of the first acts he did was to take the other members of the Standing Committee of the Politburo and go to the Chinese Museum of History, where a, a new exhibition, a permanent exhibition, has been established, um, which is ostensibly about the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. But the first major room of that exhibition is all about the century of humiliation or the century of shame, Banian Guochi the uh, 100 years of, of humiliation. And this is the 100-year period, roughly from 1840, the beginning of the Opium Wars, through to the end of World War II, say around 1945, 1949, when China was divided up, uh, semi-colonialized, and brutalized, indeed, uh, by foreign powers, and particularly by Japan in the first part of the 20th century. So the party lays claim to have been instrumental and even singularly responsible for a ousting those foreign powers and, and defeating Japan in China and establishing the country as the People's Republic in 1949 and under communist leadership bringing China back to greatness. And it's constantly reminding the Chinese people of that negative history of the past connecting it to the Communist Party leadership and saying, if it weren't for us, we'd still be in chains, basically. We'd still be a humiliated and backward power, and we wouldn't be enjoying the rejuvenation we're having today. So critical, not only to how Chinese leaders and Chinese people identify, uh, but very important for understanding how the Communist Party clings to power. Do you think that that focus on the century of humiliation indicates a renewed nationalism in China under Xi Jinping? Well, it can. Uh, I think in particular in the way that Chinese nationalism gets directed at certain parties. So most prominent, of course, is Japan, uh, because the invasion and occupation and brutal treatment of the Chinese by the Japanese uh, beginning in the early part of the 20th century and lasting through to the, their defeat in 1945. <laughs> Walking along here with the protesters outside the Japanese embassy, there are thousands of people here on the streets. Of course, protests like this in China are normally shut down the moment they begin. But this is a very different issue. This is an issue involving Japan, a strong sense of nationalism. 
Uh, but more broadly, I think, too, the Chinese leadership likes to point to sort of Western dominance, Western responsibility as part of the century of shame, you know, beginning with the United Kingdom and other European powers uh, that sought to carve China up and exploit China's resources. So whenever there's a need to sort of pose the other or to suggest that there is a continuing enemy out there that wants to undermine China, wants to drag it back to its humiliated state, wants to contain its ambition, that's a a good opportunity for Chinese leaders to play this nationalist card while reminding them of the the narrative of that humiliation, of that past where Western powers and, of course, Japan uh, dominated China. The case I come to the floor here today to highlight is that of Huan Qi, who has long been targeted by the Chinese government because of his advocacy for the rights of ordinary citizens. In December of last year, Chinese prosecutors authorized Juan's arrest for allegedly, quote, illegally providing state secrets overseas, unquote. Political activity, whether that's political speech uh, or reading things that the party believes are sensitive or wrong, or even worse, actively taking up your political beliefs in a way that would confront the Chinese Communist Party, those are still very much taboo. And in, in fact, under Xi Jinping, we've seen a real... Uh, sort of crackdown on those sorts of activities. But by and large, having lived in China myself uh, more than 30 years ago, uh, it's a very, very different place, not only economically, but also socially. It seems like overall a more prosperous China has also become more free. Do you think that those two things are related? And if China continues to grow economically, do you think that there will be more respect for civil liberties in the future? Well, I think that's obviously what many expected back in the 70s and 80s, as China opened up to the outside world, uh, the argument in the West in particular was that by engaging China, by integrating it into the uh, Western-dominated economic system, um, by growing, by, by having a hand in growing its middle class, that somehow that would bring about a change in the political system. Uh, this is something uh, that the Chinese would call peaceful evolution. And it's not something that they like, the Chinese Communist Party, because ultimately it suggests the demise of the Chinese Communist Party. It hasn't worked out that way. And it's been, I think, a matter of some frustration in the West. As I say, the sort of social aspects, the, the, the sort of personal lifestyle freedoms of the Chinese people, by and large, have evolved in a far more open way. But on the political side of the ledger, no. It is, if anything, more sharply constrained political activity today than it was even 10 years ago. So the question is, can that be sustained? Uh, does economic growth, the growth of the middle class, the, the openness that people can achieve in terms of understanding how the world works, accessing the internet, etc., etc., uh, is that ultimately going to lead to the demise of the party? And I don't think we can predict that with much confidence. In some ways, the economic growth of China has strengthened the state's capacity to crack down. The growth of the Internet and the digital age doesn't only flow in one direction. It empowers the state in some ways to be even more assiduous. How stable do you think the Communist Party's rule of China is? I think we generally have to say that it is relatively stable. 
for, for a Chinese communist leader, perhaps they would see it as a glass half full because of the instruments of power and coercion and surveillance and security that they still have at hand. That's not to say that there are not instabilities, because there certainly are. Now to China, where President Hu Jintao left the G8 summit to fly home to deal with the ethnic protests in the northwest part of his country. A worried government has turned out the troops to ensure violence on the streets won't happen again. Police are on every corner, on every block. There are hundreds of thousands of people in China who are dying every year from pollution-related diseases. The only larger cause of death in China now than pollution-related diseases is, is smoking. The Chinese Communist Party's biggest problems are not external. It's not the threat of invasion from Russia or the United States or Japan. Their real problems lie internally. Hundreds of thousands of, of large-scale incidents of unrest in China per year, enormous environmental problems, growing disgruntlement uh, for some in the middle class uh, because of the crackdown that has been characterized under Xi Jinping over the past 10 years on these sort of more politically oriented freedoms and activities, and other big socioeconomic challenges that they face at home, which could, over time, lead to greater instabilities. The party understands this, and they are working very hard uh, to monitor them and to quash, at the earliest moment, any possibility of organized dissent arising. Over the past couple of decades, economic growth has regularly been in the double digits. What's been driving that kind of growth, and do you think it's going to be sustainable for the future? Well, the, the basis of that growth is, of course, starting from a relatively low base and then pouring enormous resources into basically building the basics of a modern industrial state. Okay, so power grids, cell phones, dams, bridges, high-speed railways hundreds and hundreds of airports, building aircraft, and on and on. So huge capital investment, which created jobs, uh, which you know built factories, which allowed for those factories to, to operate, and cheap labor flowed into them, and they became an export platform. So it's, it's, it's really a, a remarkable story of economic growth on a pretty classic form, but on a huge scale, not really seen before. Uh, in the uh, in the last couple of centuries. Now that model has to change, and it is changing. World stock and currency markets were rocked for a second straight day today as China continued to devalue its currency, the yuan. I've heard a an economist who helped us with our book, Arthur Krober, put it this way: You know, one more high-speed railway, one more airport one more power plant is going to have a marginally lower return on growth than it did when there were fewer of them, right? So capital investment has to change. The resources have to be invested more effectively, uh, more efficiently, to extract maximum value out of this huge capital investment which has been made. Uh, and they are in the midst of transitioning to this newer model, but it's difficult, and lots of countries have failed at doing it. China risks falling into the so-called middle-income trap, where they 
basically fall into a, a sort of stagnant phase and stay there and never really become a highly advanced economy. So what's the problem? The problem is that it requires a real change in thinking about not just sort of economic growth, but what are the politics of economic growth? You know, allowing the market to have a bigger say in the allocation of resources has to be a part of this transition. But that's not something Communist Party economic apparatchiks are very comfortable with. Of course, that sort of decision would probably lead to the closure of lots of state-owned enterprises, meaning massive layoffs. And maybe most importantly, it also would require the introduction of a more transparent and accountable government, as well as judicial system, which would be lend confidence to investors and to others that decisions being made by the justice system weren't done on a political basis, but rather on the basis of law. None of those steps are steps that the Communist Party leadership under Xi Jinping has yet shown itself prepared really to do. Australia is, in fact, China's largest trading partner. But China's economy is changing from manufacturing to one more focused on domestic demand. And the new wave of Chinese visitors are staying longer and spending more, about $9 billion Australian dollars last year. So the nature of China's economy is changing. Australia has been used to selling lots of mineral resources to China on the sort of old model of its economic growth. So what should we be doing to adapt to to meet the new needs of China? Well, I think the biggest change for any nation or any business community that wants to gain greatest value out of its relationship with a future China, it has to be in getting what we might call beyond the border and being far more active inside China uh, as well as being far more active in providing services to Chinese, whether that's in China or here in Australia. Australia has traditionally relied very heavily upon uh, its wealth of, of natural resources. And that's not likely to change much. It's just that in the near to medium term, and maybe longer, we're not going to see the sort of um, high prices that we enjoyed during the commodities boom. So it's not that, it's not that commodities and resources will no longer be important. They will, they will remain important. It's just that they shouldn't be seen as the sort of core or even the driver for success in dealing with the Chinese going forward. So things like financial services, aged care, tourism, education, agricultural technology and logistics, even mining logistics um, services, insurance. These are going to be areas where the Chinese middle class, as well as growing Chinese um, multinational companies, are going to be looking for help and support and contracting out work to others, not just Chinese. So it will require, I think, an evolution in thinking to maybe see the pointy end of, of Australian economic engagement with China more in the way of services provision rather than extractive resources. The 2015 free trade agreement with China was heralded by our own government as a great success. Do you think it's going to make a big difference? It's certainly better to have it than not to. Um, but of course, the, the negotiation uh, was hard fought. But in the end of the day, I think you know, China probably had a great deal of, of, of leverage. 
it may well be worth revisiting some some aspects of it. I know that um, it's certainly the case that many Western countries, Australia included, are frustrated uh, in their ability to sort of break into the China market. Singularly, there's almost always a, a requirement that it be done jointly with, with Chinese partners, and that has its own sets of risks. Uh, so I think there's a continued frustration about access to the Chinese market. Uh, one of the worries, of course, is that since China is so overwhelmingly larger as an economy, uh, then efforts to seek what you might call reciprocity could uh, end up in the Chinese economy overwhelming the, the Australian one. Uh, you know, if we're seeking you know greater access to markets, for example, in China, well, uh, reciprocity would call for China getting greater access here too, which is going to have you know its own potential downsides. But by and large, I think it's a good to have the free trade agreement in hand. I think it should underscore for Australians that the Chinese take the economic relationship with Australia seriously. And of course, it should serve as a platform to try and get to this next phase in the relationship, the economic relationship between Australia and China. Chinese buyers are also on the hunt for foreign assets. Earlier this month, the Australians blocked two Chinese bidders from buying Ausgrid, a large power generator. And tensions over the South China Sea have also complicated the relationship. You say in your book that Australians should be clear that Chinese leaders are quite willing to exercise economic hard power to prevent or punish actions they deem unacceptable. You also give a very interesting example of China discouraging people from visiting the Philippines and um, preventing banana um, imports as a result of a dispute over the Scarborough Shoal. If Australia developed an anti-China reputation, that would be devastating. Well, potentially, yes. We know just how reliant in terms of export revenue, Australia is in relation to China. Just consider the education sector just as one example. It's a $20 billion export industry for Australia. Uh, I think most people don't think of education, international education as an export, but it is. And a very, very large portion, something like 30% of that, is from China. So on any, almost any campus in Australia today, certainly the major say, G08 campuses, you know, somewhere between 30 and 40% of the international student body are Chinese. And, of course, foreign students pay a significantly higher amount to attend university uh, here in Australia than would Australian students. So it's a huge uh, revenue generator and very important, in fact, for helping subsidize and keep the cost of education lower for Australians and help drive, of course, other uh, outcomes like good research, uh, discovery, uh, innovation at universities. If China were to signal their displeasure with Australia and choose to discourage or even prevent Chinese students from coming to Australia, that would be devastating to the education sector. And if you think that's far-fetched, when Donald Trump was president-elect and had taken the phone call from the president of Taiwan, one of the major mouthpieces of the Chinese party and state, the Global Times, explicitly stated that if the new president wasn't careful, China could take action, including cutting off the flow of Chinese students to the United States, which is also a very significant number and an important aspect of, of the U.S. higher education system. When the Nobel Prize Committee in Norway 
granted the prize in 2006 to a Chinese dissident, Liu Xiaobo. China's reaction was swift and punitive, cutting off current negotiations on a trade deal, preventing any sort of senior or even medium-level political contact, and also curtailing imports. Well, Australia rests in the crosshairs of what could be a devastating conflict between the world's biggest powers. In the waters to our north, Australia's biggest trading partner, China, and our closest ally, America, are shadowing each other, generals from both sides drawing up battle plans. Still in the South China Sea issue, Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and Foreign Minister Julie Bishop urge China and the Philippines to follow the South China Sea Permanent Court of Arbitration ruling. We have no position on the competing claims to sovereignty. We have no claims of our own. But we insist that it is absolutely vital that all countries abide by international law and it is an important trade route for Australia. It is also a very important maritime route globally. Do you think that we should be aiming to strengthen our alliance with the United States as a hedge against a more assertive China, or would that just risk alienating us from China? Well, of course, the Australia-US Security Alliance is already very, very strong. So China has learned to live with that, you know, for uh, more than 60 years. I don't see that the alliance in and of itself uh, is somehow a, a game changer for China. They, they understand that this is a part of the regional security architecture as it currently is. Do they like it? No, um, but they're not likely to take drastic action to try and change it. It'll be far more subtle than that. It will be constantly attempting to drive wedges in various quiet ways to sort of weaken the underpinnings of of the alliance structure between the United States and Australia as well as between the United States and its other major allies in the region so that if if a contingency a circumstance a crisis were to arise in which the United States expects the participation of its allies there will be second thoughts there will be doubts there would be hesitation, potentially. That is what the Chinese are after. And, of course, even better than hesitation would be simply turning away and choosing not to take part. For Australians, I think that the challenge here is that there's a very simplistic duality in the minds of many Australians looking at this triangle of Australia, China, U.S. relations. The simplicity is that China is seen only as or primarily as an economic partner versus the United States, which is only seen as or primarily as Australia's most important security partner. And this duality then forces some kind of a choice. Do we want prosperity or do we want security? This obviously is black and white in the extreme uh, and doesn't make a lot of sense as a basis of policy. Of course, Australians should have both. Um, and more importantly, rather than looking at China and the United States in those sort of strict black and white terms, we argue in the book that it's smarter for Australians to understand the reality, which is that both the United States and China are both important economic and security partners. We need to be prepared to grapple with complexity <laughs> rather than simplicity 
as we go forward in navigating uh, for Australian interests between these two important powers to Australia's future. I wondered if the Prime Minister were to call you today and ask for your top three tips on better engagement with China, what would they be? One very important one is to take this relationship with China very, very seriously, to lead a national conversation about the importance to Australia of coming to understand China better. If Australia understood China even half as well as it understands the United States or the United Kingdom, Australia would be in a far, far better place. So that's that would be one major uh, initiative. Um, but it, it's a multi-year, multi-decade undertaking, which we can't think is going to be simple. Secondly, we'd like to see a great deal more done uh, here in Australia to demonstrate that we value the sort of the Chinese contribution to Australia's prosperity. Let's do a better job of managing and uh, leaving a long-term positive impression with the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Chinese students who come to our shores and many who stay, but most who return uh, to China. We would want them to return with a positive experience, an excellent education, and an affinity. I think there's a lot of work to be done on that on that front. But, you know, there are others, tourists who come here, etc. There's a real opportunity to build goodwill with this very important country for Australia's future. And last, I guess, um, getting back to some of the economic issues we discussed before, um, being ready to take fullest advantage of the paradigm shift that's unfolding in China today towards a more consumer-led economy, consumption-led economy, burgeoning middle class, so that both inside China and those Chinese that are moving abroad are gaining the utmost they can from the ingenuity, especially in the services sector, that the Australian economy can provide. Professor Batesgill, thank you so much for speaking with The Conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, TuneIn Radio or Stitcher. And please leave a comment or review. We'd love to hear from you.